1: How long is the Chicago Bears championship window really open? Who should they look to sign this offseason between Bryce Callahan and Adrian Amos? And can the AAF teach us anything about what we could look to incorporate in our officiating going forward? I look to answer these questions and more on this episode of Bear With Me. Hello and welcome to Bear With Me, a Chicago Bears-minded podcast hosted by me, Robert Schmitz, on the Windy City Gridiron podcasting channel, where, to my understanding, it sounds like we've got a new podcast joining the brand. So besides me with Bear With Me and Lester Wilfung with T-Formation Conversation, it also sounds like we're going to have EJ Snyder and Jeff Brekus joining with a new podcast. I don't know anything about it. I know about as much as y'all do, so I'm excited to hear about what they've got going on. Based on the poll that I ran at Windy City Gridiron, today's topic of note will be the Bears championship window. How long is it? What does it look like? And I threw in a couple extra goodies there, too. Plus, you'll be hearing today about... Adrian Amos versus Bryce Callahan, as I specified in the intro, and then I want to talk about officiating for a little bit. But anyways, you can follow me over on Twitter at RSCHMITZ28 R 28 I've started dropping breakdown threads there, so if you're into player breakdowns, feel free to go check that out. But without further ado, you guys came here for a podcast, so let's get into it. First things first, if we're going to talk about a Bears championship window, I think we have to start with defense. One of the questions that I set out to answer was, what do big defenses look like? How well do they stand up over time? What creates big defenses? And how did the Bears great defense in 2018 really arise? And I actually found some decent trends. Now, I was only able to do a fairly surface level dive, given that there's just mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of NFL history that I could have combed through. But what I did find was that Legion of Boom, the Ravens defense, both in 2000 and all the way through 2011, like the Chuck Bogano year, and the Vikings in 2017, all exhibited one unusual trend. They needed three super pros, is what I guess we'll call them, uh, to lead that defense for it to be truly great. Seattle and the Legion of Boom, between 2012 and 2015, had Cam Chancellor, Richard Sherman, and Earl Thomas manning these positions. The Ravens defense in 2000, they won the Super Bowl with Ray Lewis, Sam Adams, and Rod Woodson. Then those two left, but back in 2002 and 2003, leading through like 2011, just like we said, they picked up Ed Reed and Terrell Suggs to replace Adams and Woodson. So between Lewis, Ed Reed and Terrell Suggs, you had those three ultra pros. The Vikings in 2017 had Anthony Barr, Harrison Smith, and Xavier Rhodes leading them. All three of those are great players. They might not fit that same ultra status that Ed Reed, Terrell Suggs, and Ray Lewis fit, but they're very, very good players in their own right. From what I could tell, looking at these three defenses as kind of a case study, it seems as if the essence of a great defense, the essence of a dominating defense, is having three players that you can count on to consistently win their matchup. Not to mention, you want to pair that, of course, with generally good talent across the board, people like Eddie Goldman, those sorts of players that are going to fill their spot, they're going to do it well, but it seems that that big key is people like Sherman, people like Chancellor, people like Ray Lewis that are going to come in and play at not just a high level, but the highest level. Be top three in their position, do very, very well. That's where the Vikings are, they they, they break down a little bit. I don't think Harrison Smith is the best safety in the league, for instance, but he's very, very, very good. Xavier Rhodes and Anthony Barr both provide a lot of value. They've got great defensive talent all over their front. They're a little more jack of all trades but all three of those guys are very talented. Now, the Bears, of course, I can name all three of those guys very easily. While it's seemingly loaded with studs like Prince of Mukamura, Roquan Smith, and Kyle Fuller, the truth is, is that everything starts with these three guys, Akeem Hicks, Khalil Mack, and Eddie Jackson. All three of those players are phenomenal. They are so good. They are the best of the best at their position, and they start everything for this Bears defense. Akeem Hicks rips up both the run and the pass. Khalil Mack demands double, sometimes triple blocks, and Eddie Jackson makes sure that people like Nick Foles can't throw those nasty floaters that he got us with during the playoffs. Between three players like this, you just end up being able to cover basically the entire football field and have those three guys alone wreck entire offensive game plan. This works across all of the teams that we've talked about, but in our case, Hakeem Hicks and Khalil Mack both force the teams to generally go to a short game because they're able to apply so much pressure just by themselves. Especially if you're able to free up Hicks to have consistent single blocking situations, he's going to tear them up on the ground. And then if they do get passes off, If they float them too freely, Eddie Jackson will just run under him, because he's effectively the 2018 reincarnation of Ed Reed himself. Between those three guys, you can fill them in with capable talent, just like Prince Mukamura Kyle Fuller, but they're going to end up playing slightly different roles. Let's use Kyle Fuller as a case study for what I'm talking about. So, Kyle Fuller is a man corner, namely an off-man corner. What that means is, is that he generally wants to give a little bit more cushion than he than. More commonly seen, certainly much more than Prince of Mukamura is going to give, and he's going to back up with the receiver until he is certain that that receiver isn't going to break out or back towards the quarterback. As soon as he does, he's going to flip his hips and he's going to run with him. But until then, Kyle Fuller's entire aim is to cut in front of the receiver should they try to throw an out route or a breaking route of pretty much any kind. That's his whole game. But this relies on having capable safeties so that he doesn't overplay his man. So suddenly, here we are with Eddie Jackson coming into his own. And how about that? Kyle Fuller goes out and has his best season as a Bear making the Pro Bowl. How about that, right? Isn't that crazy? The year that we've finally got capable safety play, Kyle Fuller steps up and plays the best season that he's ever played. I don't think so. I think that this is a classic example of Eddie Jackson making the entire secondary better because he's able to allow them to play their game with the knowledge that if they get roasted over the top, Jackson's got them. Likewise, the entire front set of outside linebackers and defensive linemen know that they're only going to get single blocks almost exclusively because if Hicks doesn't get double blocked, Mac will, and if Mac gets triple blocked, Hicks won't. And if Hicks and Mack are their attention, then I bet you they're not watching Kylie Fitz. I bet you they're not paying attention to Jonathan Bullard, Roy Robertson Harris. We could name tons of dudes that are having great years. Bilal Nichols, perfect example. They're not paying attention to Bilal Nichols. 98 comes onto the field, and I've got to think that the offensive linemen, they don't breathe easy by any means. Nichols played great, but they're not expecting what he is going to do. People can only pay attention to so many guys at a time. That's just how game planning works. So when when your role players get a chance to shine and they're able to play their game instead of getting focused on and uber scouted i think that they play a lot better and that's what we saw this last year plus the middle linebackers. I guess inside linebackers, but we'll call them middle linebackers because they play in the middle, like Danny Trevathan and Roquan Smith. They just have to deal with everything that the back end doesn't have and the front end lets allow, which isn't all that much. It's just the middle of the field. They end up with some free tight ends, but with consistent pressure being applied by the front four and consistent back end defense being held by Eddie Jackson, Smith and Trevathan, suffice to say, have a very manageable job. Now you may be asking, Robert, Why are you spending so much time talking about the defense and why the Bears' defense is good? Well, it's because, in my opinion, this team's window lasts as long as the defense allows. And it's not some old guardy Bears mentality like, Oh, yeah, we're, we're all about defense and running the ball. No, 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 not really. It's more because we've got almost all of our money in defense right now. And if Mitch doesn't pan out, this window is closed anyways. So if we assume Mitch Trubisky is going to play well, at least like... 4,000 yards level well which by the way I think he will but anyways if he plays that well it's going to be up to the defense to push us into that championship tier and that means that we've got until 2021 here's how I get there Khalil Mack is basically a bear forever. I mean, looking at his contract, it lasts until about 2023, which is so far out. I don't even want to think about that. I know my life's going to be wildly different in 2023. I can't imagine your life's not going to be different in 2023. We'll get there when we get there plus he's phenomenal barring injury he's going to maintain his level of play without any issue whatsoever hicks is a bear until 2021 with dead cap pretty much all the way he ain't going anywhere maybe 2021 because he's still under contract there but i imagine if he keeps up his play at any level similar to what he's doing right now he's going to remain a bear until the last possible second Last up is Eddie Jackson, debatably the most important of the three because he's manning that back end. He is an outright UFA in 2021, and he's not just going to get a pay raise. If he keeps playing like he's playing now, he's going to become one of the highest paid safeties in the league. This is in 2021, which in case you aren't familiar with what year that is, that's the year that Mitch Trubisky goes up for an extension as well. So 2021 is going to hurt. Let me put it into perspective what I mean when I say it's going to hurt. So, Goldman's contract ceases its dead money in 2022, which I'm almost certain he'll be cut around then because he's set to make a ridiculous $18.4 million with only $2.2 million dead cap, but who really knows? So, he's got a very long contract. Kyle Fuller's contract is extraordinarily long as well, and we only start to get out of his with, I believe four and a half dead cap in fuller with 18 and a half million base salary but again that's in 2021 between those two goldman and fuller you'd be looking at about 6.7 in dead cap which is never what you want but more importantly nobody's contract really opens up and gives the bears a good opportunity to cut them on i mean pretty much ever there's no real easy deal here they're all going to come with some degree of dead money and they've all pretty big salaries with very long terms Pace knew who he wanted. He was willing to overpay to get there. As we saw last year, the team is really, really good and really, really talented, but it's costing us major money. So Floyd becomes, an, uh, not a, a UFA, he becomes a you know an option year, but I don't know if we'll pick it up, because I don't know if we can afford it. And Danny Trevathan, after next year, his contract goes up, and I assume that those guys are going to cover the inevitable Cody Whitehair extension in 2020. So this isn't even 2021 yet. I think Floyd and Trevathan will cover that, because we want Trubisky to have a consistent center. Whitehair has been at that Pro Bowl level. I'm sure we want him. Not to mention, Floyd is going to be outright expensive because he's an edge rusher. And Danny Trevathan, while fantastic, can probably be filled in by somebody from the draft. We've got a lot of inside linebackers. I tend to think he's going to go. I love him, but I think he's going to go. But that means we still haven't addressed the $50 million that we're going to be trying to get for Jackson and Trubisky. Here's the best that I could dig up. To generate that $50 million, you would probably need to cut Fuller. Long, Leno, Gabriel, and not re-sign Prince of Mukamura. That gets you that $50 million. You could potentially flip Burton for Gabriel, or you could not re-sign Robinson to keep Fuller, but that's kind of how it goes. It is going to hurt. We're going to lose a lot of guys. We don't have forever. And all of this assumes, by the way, that we keep Allen Robinson for his current value. And again, that Trevathan and Floyd both leave, and so that gives us white hair, Uh, Jackson and Trubisky, but that's sort of the breaks of it. I mean, this is what happens when you've got a team that has 10 rookies, 10 guys on their rookie contracts anyways, playing significant minutes. You're going to have to inevitably replace them with more rookies. And with this team lacking a couple of first and early round picks, we'll have to see how that goes to make sure that the Bears stay in contention. So the gist of what I've found in terms of my research is that we have until 2021 with this team two seasons. From there, the team could get better it could get worse. We don't know until we see who we draft. It is going to be that drafted talent that determines how we play in the future. With the talent on the roster, we know who's going to command how the Bears play now, but as these rookies leave and we start losing people, we lose Floyd, we lose Trevathan, we're going to need to see them replaced by younger guys. But almost everybody is locked up for 2020, let alone 2019. So the 2020 team won't even be that different from the 2019 team. I assume it's the 2021 season where you're going to see a lot of rocks fall because there's just no other way to handle this. Assuming that the cap raises and gives us a little bit of room, things might get a little bit better. Maybe we get $20 million off of that and don't have to cut and trade all those guys that I talked about. But 2021 is going to be that dice roll season where we just don't know what's going to happen until we get there. We can't assume Jackson keeps playing like the best safety in the NFL until he does. We can't assume that Trubisky is worth the $30 million that I'm projecting him for until he proves it. But yeah, I'm thinking the Bears' window is 2019 in 2020, and from there, we'll have to reevaluate. Which, hey, if you ask me, that's about as good as you can ask for. We've got next year, we know that much, we'll take it 365 days at a time, and if we screw up, we have the year after that, too. And speaking of 2019, I would be outright remiss if I didn't talk about probably what has become the biggest Bears offseason discussion topic, which is do the Bears keep Bryce Callahan or Adrian Amos? Bryce Callahan, the corner, Adrian Amos, the strong safety. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Bears currently have about $5.9 million in cap space. This will, of course, become about $14 million if they cut Deion Sims and Sam Acho, which is to be expected, by the way, and that's effectively pretty much just enough to sign one guy. While you'd think that $14 million would be a lot and plenty to get the two men signed, the real gist is that between the draft class that we have coming in and the fact that we've effectively got to end up filling out the 53-man roster with people that are at least paid the vet minimum, we'll probably only end up with about, let's say, $9 million in what we'll call effective cap space. The idea here is that once you subtract the vet minimum guys and you subtract the draft class, what do you have left? What's your real spending money on the open market? It'll be about 7 to $9 million. Now, you could probably get one of these guys, Amos or Callahan, for it, I think the Bears should sign Callahan, and here's why. It's primarily to do with positional value. I think Callahan's value is easy to understand in that he's a phenomenal performer that's been primarily limited by injuries. But to my understanding, Adrian Amos' camp thinks that Amos is much better than the Bears do a lot of this to my understanding has even some to do with the pro football focus grade that he got last year that said he was an elite NFL safety but the point is from every report that I've heard Amos thinks that he is an A-lister the Bears don't and neither do most of the fans. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle when it comes to Amos. I've actually thought he's a lot better than plenty of my Bears cohorts, but I don't think he's an elite level safety. I think he's a great strong safety, which is effectively to say he's a faster, slightly smaller linebacker style player that is phenomenal in run support and okay in coverage. I think these guys are relatively easy to find, especially given that college spread offenses are challenging coverage so often that guys are ending up with tons of coverage reps and you're able to see who can cover at a decent level. Now of course with so much focus in college on stopping the pass, you end up with these safeties that end up with a lot of run responsibilities and I think that creates pretty solid strong safeties. Now of course EJ Snyder and some of my other Windy City cohorts are going to be a better resource as to finding strong safeties, but the gist of what I'm trying to say is that strong safety is an easier to replace position than free safety is. And with Eddie Jackson sitting in that free safety position, our strong Safety doesn't even have to be that great in coverage. He just has to be a solid run stopper. That's where somebody like Dion Bush, I think, could be a potential replacement there. But the point is, they're easier to replace than slot cornerback, which is what Bryce Callahan plays. With slot receivers like Odell Beckham at one point before he moved outside, Jarvis Landry's a famous one, Victor Cruz while he was still playing, Julian Edelman just tore up a Super Bowl out of the slot, I'm starting to take over games. We need a guy who can cover them well. Sherrick McManus got beat by Golden Tate in the slot in our playoff game, and that's what gave up the touchdown that ended up costing us the game. So if that's not a decent example of why we need slot cornerbacking, I don't know what is. It's not to say that Bryce Callahan would have stopped Golden Tate's move. We don't know. But having our best guy at that position is going to be more advantageous for the Bears than anything else. So I think that Bryce Callahan and the Bears are going to be able to come to an agreement on what Callahan's value is as well as keeping him around because it's injury we're talking about. We're not talking about failure to play. We're not talking about the fact that Amos shows up to stop the run a lot but doesn't really generate a lot of turnovers and generally doesn't do anything super exciting but still thinks that he's at that extremely exciting, domineering level. Plus, he took that bad penalty, but that's neither here nor there. I really think that it's going to be tougher for the Bears and him to come to some kind of, I'm not going to call it a discounted rate, but basically that Amos wants to be paid way, way, way up here. You can't see my hand, but think of it as high up as up as I can reach my hand. And the Bears want to pay him a little lower, closer to the high middle, above average is I'm sure where the Bears want to pay him. Bryce Callahan, on the other hand, can take a high level cornerbacking rate, about $10 million, and say, okay cut that down about four million dollars to that five to seven region because I've been missing games with injury I understand if I'm going to pay about 12 games a season then I only deserve about 75 percent of the contract that I would get if I was an elite guy who's paying 16 games I think that argument is easier to make for both sides I think it's easier to accept for a guy like Callahan and it's ultimately why I think that the deal gets done for the Bears not to mention I think it helps the Bears because once you've got that CB position filled you can focus on drafting a strong safety, a run-supporting safety in the draft. Remember, Adrian Amos was originally drafted with a fifth-rounder, so if you give Ryan Pace one of those late-rounders he's good with, a fourth, fifth, or sixth-rounder, I think he'll be able to draft a strong safety that could potentially play at Amos's level. Not to mention, I think it's a lot harder to draft a starting-level cornerback at Bryce Callahan's level. So, Pace, go ahead and make it easy on yourself. Sign the cornerback that you've got in hand – draft a strong safety you're gonna to have to take a risk somewhere i think this is the first one and this brings us to the last thing i want to talk about which is officiating and here's why the alliance of american football debuted and it was pretty cool but the most important thing that i think we can take away from it is that football's being played past the nfl season which is good for us With it comes a couple of rule changes, though. Number one, there are no kickoffs. Number two, there are no extra points, or at least not kicked extra points. You have to go for two after a touchdown. Number three, in overtime, each team gets the ball on the 10 once with first and goal and has to score and go for two. You can't kick field goals in overtime, and games can end in ties. And number four, the play clock is shortened to about 30 seconds. This is obviously really interesting, and to me, it brings up a good moment to talk a little bit about a my stance on it and a couple of other things therefore. First off, I hate admitting it, but I'm actually okay if the NFL gets rid of kickoffs. Uh, While I like kickoffs, I love the cinematic thing where they pull the camera down way to the field level and they kick off. We watch everybody run, but nowadays they're basically all ending up in touchbacks. Very few of them go for touchdowns. When they do, it's usually more depressing or, ah man, that thing screwed up than it is exciting. You don't end up with Devin Hester anymore, and it kind of just wastes everybody's time. It's another reason for them to go to TV Timeout or another excuse for them to cut away and because of that i'm probably okay getting rid of them again it's a bummer it's a relic they call it kicking off for a reason but hey what can you do That said, extra points, anything related to place kicking, I think that should stick. I find place kicking wildly exciting, believe it or not. I think it's thrilling. I even think the double doink was thrilling. It was just thrilling against us. Place kicking is this crazy thing that I think is kind of the perfect way to settle if a team isn't able to score a touchdown again, it's exciting. You've got these huge dudes up front and smaller, lightning-fast dudes on the skills position that are battling. They're going to war. Quarterbacks trying to out-scheme each other. Coaches trying to duke out what they've got planned. And what ends up deciding games often is one of the smallest guys on the team coming onto the field and kicking as well as he can to try to put a ball through two uprights. I think that is part of what makes football crazy. It's part of what makes it unique. It's part of what makes it interesting. So I think there should be extra points, and if extra points aren't exciting enough, if people don't think that they're missing enough kicks, back it up. I don't care. I think it should just be an option. I also think that the NFL is always shockingly slow to adapt to new ideas. I personally think that the current 33 yard extra point thing is working. Maybe you're making a 40-yard field goal. I think that might, believe it or not, put too much mental strain on the kickers, but that's neither here nor there. I think that Nagy's strategy of going for two more often is going to start getting adapted a lot more places. Adopted, I should have said. Because going for two is a lot easier than a 33-yard extra point sometimes. But, of course, we're still stuck in the extra point thing. I think that overtime in the NFL is actually pretty okay right now. That's just one man's opinion. I think that the college rules thing isn't fair because NFL football is all about driving up and down the field. It's all about putting plays together to go the length of the distance. And to my understanding, there's currently no major advantage to actually receiving the overtime kickoff. At the moment, I believe that you've got a 2% chance better of winning if you get the ball in overtime, but if you give up a touchdown in the NFL on one of those overtime drives, I do think you deserve to lose. And yes, that includes teams like the Chiefs that are pretty much stacked to where they're entirely skewed on offense. My thought there would be, don't let the game go to overtime. The Chiefs had a chance to not let it go to overtime and to play for the touchdown. They chose not to. They bet on a 50-50 coin flip for their defense to end up taking the field, and then the defense didn't convert. I actually think that's the coach's fault there the rules are pretty cleanly set up and i think they're okay but again feel free to disagree please comment below if you do disagree i want to hear what you think and then another thing with the aaf's play clock shortening I think that's actually a good idea. The NFL ought to pick that up. I don't think I've ever looked at the play clock and thought to myself, yeah, 40 seconds is too short, or it's the perfect amount of time. Usually, especially now that we've got people like uh, Sean McVay calling plays in with the express intent of actually calling the reads and making audible calls for his quarterback, I think potentially shortening that play clock would be advantageous to the sport of football and to making quarterbacks have to be better and show their exceptionality As they go, I think that's a good thing. And plus, we would get more football plays in a 60 minute football game. I'm all for that. I'm sure you're all for it too. And then they got this Sky Judge thing. They had a sky judge that actually live walked through everything that they were doing from a refereeing perspective, and I think that reminded me that the NFL needs a little bit more transparency in their officiating. I think there are currently too many moments where the NFL referees get under that hood to watch a play, and then they come out and they announce something that's absolutely ridiculous, and nobody understands it. I would have loved, I would have killed just about to listen to somebody explain to me how Des Bryant didn't catch that ball against the Green Bay Packers, because I watched the NFL screw up what they're catching. Ruling was for the next three years trying to make sure that that ruling kept getting upheld in other places. Des Bryant, to my understanding, made a football move, and that was that. But the NFL. In what they tried to do with the catch rule and their referees not being transparent ended up confusing absolutely everybody, all the viewers, all the referees. It just made everything worse. Plus, this idea of a sky judge, I think, really helps out a lot of the referees because it fixes the New Orleans situation. I was at a bridal shower, a couple's shower, actually, and a friend of mine started talking about the NFL with me because... What else are people going to talk to me about, right? Uh, But yeah, anyways, he used these words that really stuck out to me. He said, how do we make sure that what happens to the saints never happens again? And I don't know what to tell y'all, but I actually thought that everything that happened to the saints, while it was totally screwy and I don't agree with it, doesn't really need any crazy fix. I don't think you can review PI. That's dumb. It opens the door to reviewing holding. It opens the door to reviewing judgment calls and that's really, really nasty to me, especially because in the Saints case, we're not reviewing P.I. We're, we're arguing to make sure that a coach's challenge can call a penalty. This wouldn't be reviewing P.I., we would be calling P.I., which I think ends up with big plays that are going to end up drawing challenge flags as the referee effectively has to go look for a penalty and ensure all 11 defenders or all 11 offensive players aren't committing some violation at any given time. And for all those rules purists out there that are saying, well, none of them should be committing penalties. That's the whole point of sport. I've played both hockey, football and lacrosse. I know that's three. I've played a lot of competitive sports. I'm sure plenty of y'all have too and i've i personally believe that penalties are a very strange beast because violations happen all the time in lacrosse you had a bunch of slashes in football you see this with a lot of holdings that aren't called it's all about egregiousness i heard it described in the nhl as a 50 50 rule you there's a there's a line at which a trip isn't a trip it's just I don't know, you put your skate in the wrong place and then there's another line where it's absolutely a trip and you're trying to ascertain whether it falls in front of or behind that line and therefore warrants a call or not. I believe a Sky Judge fixes a lot of this. Following the AAF's example, if you have a judge up there that's effectively able to watch the game and see everything, you cut down on those moments where the referee looks at his cohort and says, Hey, hey, did you get a better look at that? And the other guy says, No, not really. And they end up having to make a decision anyways. The Sky Judge can see it. That's his job. He's watching the TV. He's watching it from up top. He'll be able to rule in and ensure that in a moment like what happened with the Saints, somebody makes a quality decision, and they go from there. If that PI gets ignored with a Sky Judge, it's the Sky Judge's job to call in and say, hey... That was pass interference. I'm sorry, I'm overruling you. And if they don't, I think that's the end of it. Seriously, I don't think that there's anything else they should be able to do because you can't design a system around catastrophic failure like that. Catastrophic failure to do your job in any career just about ever is going to result in catastrophic failure in other places. That referee blew the call and yeah you'd like a system where you could theoretically fix that and reprimand him and make sure that that call is corrected and that the game flows on according to what the call should have been but the real truth is that the officials just got to do a better job and i think the referees need to be held accountable i think a sky judge helps you hold them accountable because it's effectively a big overseer micromanaging all the referees and ensuring they get the calls right but i think that's the best we're going to get None of us want the NFL to have more flags. None of us want these games to take any longer than they currently do. We just want more football and a better product. I think that's all we can ask for. I think a sky judge helps fix that. And that it's the best middle ground that you can get to avoid the human error itself of the fact that humans are just going to screw up. Now, there's one more thing that I want to talk about, and it's the AAF's current running biggest highlight, which was Mike Bercovici, I believe that's his name, getting absolutely crushed by a number 54 on San Antonio's commanders, I think. The point is that Bercovici got absolutely walloped, and a whole bunch of people celebrated it, which was clearly a head-to-head hit in the NFL. And they said, yes, that shouldn't have been a flag. Welcome back, old school football. And while I think that's awesome, I actually think that the head-to-head rule is a good rule. I know, I know, I know. Crazy, right? Usually me who's like, nah, don't really change too much. Things are pretty good as they are. Does Likes the head-to-head rule. Yeah, I do, because I like quarterbacks. I don't want to see Harrison Smith jumping in on Mitch Trubisky. I would prefer it if Tom Brady didn't get his head taken off. I like Pat Mahomes. I want him to play. I want these guys on the field. I mean, the AAF, while really fun, is a great reminder that great quarterbacks, good quarterbacks are hard to find. Did you see what Hackenberg did? That guy was a second-round pick, and he was so, so bad in his AAF debut against AAF-level players. These quarterbacks need protecting. Every player needs protecting. Frankly, I like wide receivers, too. I like defensive backs. I think defensive players should get more credit at how many head-to-head hits they take, and we should call it on offensive players. But that's neither here nor there. The point that I'm trying to make is that head protection, head-to-head hit protection, CTE protection, concussion protection, I think all that stuff's important because it keeps our players playing the game. Not to mention, the more that we make sure rules like head-to-head hits get outlawed and stuff like that that makes the game safer, means that we're going to have more young kids playing football, which of course allows the sport to survive. So I think that the head-to-head rule is a good one. I just think it's being enforced poorly. I don't think that everything on the planet should be a roughing the passer. I think that because the head is attached to the shoulders, that if a quarterback takes a shoulder to the face and the guy's face mask happens to touch the quarterback's head, just lightly grazing that head-to-head, I don't think it should count. I think that the rule is a good one, but I think they need to figure out some middle ground about, I don't know, Velocity or intent or something like that. You could make it subjective if you really want to. Like, that one's head-to-head. That one is not. But I don't know. I think safety is a good priority to have. I think that a lot of these other things could be corrected with a sky judge. I think kickoffs don't need to remain in the NFL. they new onside rule. AAF's new onside rule, anyways, about... To having a 4th and 12 from your own 28, and that's what an onside kick is, I think that would be actually a really fun option in the NFL. If an offense wants to just have one play and go get more than 10 yards to convert an onside kick instead of actually kicking an onside kick, I think that that makes more sense. Onside kicks don't really make NFL fans feel particularly hopeful anyways, and they kind of always feel like a gimmick. So why not just make it all up to the offense? That's the fun thing to do, right? You potentially set up a make-it-take-it situation. But yeah. Outside of that, I think that the NFL's officials are doing the best they can. I think it needs tweaking and potentially revising and that the AAF gives us a really nice window to potentially go out and revise it if the NFL would actually get off their butts and make a change. Anyways, y'all, thanks so much for listening to me. It's always a blast getting to to have this podcast on Windy City Gridiron's podcasting network. Be sure to keep an eye out for Lester Wiltfong's T-Formation conversation. Keep an eye out for EJ and Jeff's new podcast. Again, I don't know what its name is, so I really can't promote it, but keep your eye out for it. Feel free to find me on Twitter at rschmitz28. I I plan on dropping an Anthony Miller film breakdown later this week, so be sure to keep your eyes peeled for that. And as always, keep checking Windy City Gridiron for some of the best Bears news and Bears coverage that you're going to get throughout this offseason and during the 2019 season. Thank you so much, y'all, for listening to me. Bear down. And thanks so much for bearing with me.